The following programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening. I'm Paul Edwards, host of Tuesday Topics, but not for long. Uh, I have uh, three folks who are who are with me this evening, my two regulars, uh, Rick Morin and Larry Gassman, but also the person whose idea this little extravaganza was, Deborah Kendrick, who is uh, an award-winning journalist and who called me after the last Tuesday topics and said, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody interviewed you and... Um, after thinking about it for a while, uh, I decided that it was only fair for me to succumb to the Inquisition, as it were. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our award-winning journalist of the evening, Miss Deborah Kendrick, to begin the questioning. Miss Deborah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. I'll... I would promise to be gentle, but that's a promise I cannot make. Your fans await and they want the whole story. And we know there's lots of So I actually have had this idea off and on listening to you interview others. You do such a fabulous job of bringing people out and bringing their personalities and their life stories to the foreground and, and entertaining and informing us all. And every once in a while, you'll slip in a little snippet from your own life. And I think, hey, I want the rest of that story. So to poke plenty of fun at old Mr. Paul Harvey, that's what I hope we're going to get tonight is the rest of the story. So you sent me a lovely little bio sheet. And so I'll just quickly summarize from that bio sheet to tell our listeners that Paul Edwards has been quite the traveler all his life. He was born in San Francisco, California, traveled to Canada when he was seven years old, where he began his education. At 13, his mother decided it was time to live in Jamaica. And he was there for a while, and then Trinidad, and then Florida, and we'll fill in lots of gaps along the way. But one of the stories that prompted me to call you immediately last week, this idea, was a little reference you made to Trinidad. So we'll back up and talk about your childhood in a moment, but I have been itching to know the rest of that story all week. So I want to start there. When you were interviewing Scott Marshall, you referred to a time when I think you were in college 
in Trinidad and you mentioned being on a radio station that was Catholic owned and you'd have to do some Catholic play to folks. Tell us that story. Tell us all about that. Well, I was pretty active um, with the, with the Catholic church and um, really with, with the, I guess the progressive Catholic church. Um, And I had this little tiny room with an open reel tape recorder in it. Um, And they asked if I would produce uh, what what amounted to a program where I got the opportunity to pretend I was a priest and do homilies, but surrounded (laughs) by folk music. So, uh, you know, you might, you might, for for instance, be talking about um, um, looking towards the future and, and so you'd pick up a couple of folk songs that were about the future, and then you would frame whatever you wanted to say uh, around those things. And so I, I had a, a turntable out there and the open reel tape recorder, and, and um, I generally produced one of those programs a week, and then, no, two of those programs a week, and then one program where I interviewed um, priests and and it wasn't on a Catholic radio station. It was on one of the two um, national stations in Trinidad. Um, but I guess the the, the the Catholic Church either had bought time or there was some public service announcement time made available. And it was just fun to do. I mean, I I didn't I I wasn't anywhere near as good uh, as an editor as as uh, as other people are. And of course, way back then, um, editing involved cutting uh tape which <laughs> was not something that that i was strong at but but i but i survived and it was fun to do and i guess i did it for about a year or two years and and they were it was just great fun it was fun to be creative uh, about ways that you could engage people in thinking about um their future and in thinking about the future of the world as well you know, this is one of the many, many things. There are so many things in your past and mine which are so similar, which is, you know, probably why I have to like you so much because I feel like you're a lot like me, so I have to like myself. <laughs> but one of my first gigs was with a Catholic newspaper. So we've got that dark past of the Catholic stuff. But... um when you did the music, did you have favorite musicians in those days, favorite songs, and did you play any music yourself? Did you? Were you- I, I did. I did not play any music myself, um, and I had have been kind of a a folk junkie since about 1964. Um, and even though, even though at that point I was living in Trinidad. Uh, in Jamaica, excuse me, um, I would uh, occasionally go up to Miami and and buy like uh, fifty or a hundred LPs and bring them back. Um, and I, I was very much into people like um, like Phil Oaks and uh, Tom Paxton and uh, nice. a, a, a lot of the other the folkies of the period. I suppose I suppose my favorite remains phil oaks he's a he's such a tragic character but but uh, probably the best the best lyricist and certainly the best topical songwriter um probably ever to have written folk music 
And, and when you were interviewing priests, would you say that were, there were a number of, of more progressive priests at that time? Was, was it easy to find? People? Well, I, I mean, some were and some weren't. Um, there, there were a lot of Irish priests in, in Trinidad. Um, some of them I, I became very friendly with, and they, they would come over to my house for dinner, usually once a week. Um, wow. but, but others were, others were very, um, were, were very conservative, you know, and essentially they thought that, that my program was, was of the devil and, and they, they were very comfortable <laughs> saying it in the, in the interview programs. Well, you know, Mr. Edwards, you shouldn't be doing the other program that you're doing. That's not for <laughs> you. You know, that's for priests to be doing. That sounds to me like evidence that you were very good at it, <laughs> which does not surprise. So I had fun. I want to back up a little bit and talk about the beginning. So you were born in San Francisco when you were seven. You went to um, Canada and you went to school in, in British Columbia. Now, until you were 13, was that a school for the blind? Uh-huh. It, it was interesting because half the time it was a school for the blind, which is no longer there and has has a bad reputation. I mean, there are several books that have been written about the Jericho Hill School that suggest it wasn't very good. I actually had great fun there. I enjoyed it. Um, and, and I have no fault to find with the school, but a lot of the books that have been written about the Jericho Hill School have been kind of whiny. Um, but the other thing that I, that I did was to spend... Um, probably about an equal amount of time at the Athlone School for Boys, which was a boarding school for, um, for non-disabled um, uh, folks that was located in the heart of Vancouver. And, and that was an amazing experience for me. Um, we, th- there, was a, there were a group of us um, who described ourselves as the misfits. And we had, we had this little dorm you know, we had a we had a an epileptic in in the room. We had a um, we had a uh, we had a bedwetter. Um, you know, all of all of all of the folks who would generally get teased by others. And we, you know, we also had we also had a couple of pukes who we just tried to ignore. And so the, the the school for the blind was not a boarding school. This, this it, other it was, was a boarding school. It, it, it was. was a boarding school as well. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I could have stayed there. In fact, one of, one of the more traumatic days of my life was nobody had told me I was leaving the blind school and going to Athlone. So <sighs> I suddenly get picked up in this car and, and arrive at this school and get sat down on a bench and told to eat my dinner. And my dinner was a sardine salad. I don't eat fish. Ew. And so I just, I no. So I just... I just sat there at the table and 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 cried for it was uh, very traumatic. And your mother had made this decision to move you because she thought it was better for you, but she forgot to tell you about it. Is that? I, I think that's I think that's essentially right. But also, my brother was, I guess, it was decided was going to come there. So the the idea was that we should both be at the same school. And I forget, is he older or younger? He is ten and a half months older than I am. Okay. So so was going to school with him, did that turn out to be preferable to you? 
Well, it was it was great fun. He was he was in in the senior dorm, um, and and we were in the misfits dorm, and and war was pretty constantly declared between the two dorms, and we would we would do awful things to them, and they would do awful things to us in return. But but it was great fun, and I you know less lest anybody misunderstand, I think I gained a tremendous amount from being at the Athlone School because the 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 education was far more rigorous than it than it than it was at uh, the school for the blind and the expectations that that were that were there from the principal who's, who was a lady whose name was mrs drivenside um <laughs> were were amazing i i was second in my class pretty typically um and i think i had a 92 average or a 93 average and she called me into her office and she said, this just isn't good enough. And I said, excuse me? She said, it, it would be fine if you were putting any significant effort into um, the work that you're doing, but you're really not. You're just coasting. And the fact that you're able to coast and get these marks is fine. But remember that as a blind person in the future, um, it's not going to be good enough. You have to be better than everybody else and demonstrate that you're better than everybody else if you're going to be successful. That's great. And you were what, maybe 10 or 12 at that time? I was probably 11 or 12, yep. Yeah, yeah. And were you the only blind boy in that school? Oh, I was. Yeah. So so talk about your your, your Braille. I mean, you've, you've always been a fabulous Braille reader. So you you got your your braille skills together at the school for the blind before going to the boys school. Really, really, it happened at um, at I don't know where I was. Probably a um, a public school in Carmel. I was I was in the third grade or so, and a light bulb suddenly went off. Um, I. I I suddenly, suddenly Braille made sense. And so I went from having to figure out each character to suddenly being able to read anything I wanted and, and, and the, the door sort of opened. It was, a. I think that I've, I've talked to a few other people for, for whom that's happened, but it's not common. Um, and then it was great because after that, I mean, I, I could, I could read, you know, as, as essentially as well as I can now. Just suddenly yeah. within one minute, just ding, yeah. light bulb goes yeah. on. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So, Carmel, isn't that where Clint Eastwood is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is he there yet? I guess not. <laughs> I guess you and Clint weren't in kindergarten together or anything, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so, when, well, I, I should you know, back up and... and um, just clarify for other people that, that really how I know you is not so much because of any of the, the work that you've done or any of your leadership roles with the American Council of the Blind. I know you because my best friend from childhood met this guy and fell in love with him and couldn't stop talking about him every day in, in 1985 or 86. I think it was 80 or yeah. Um, 
So at any rate, that person being Gail Krause Edwards. And so I remember early on that we, we had a session once when we were with Gail and we were kind of trading childhood horror stories, which is kind of an abysmal thing to do, but you know, we were both kind of warped, I guess. But so when I think of your childhood, all I know is about your mother. They, there were a lot of issues with your mother, but what I don't know, so I'm asking you now, is did she raise you as a single parent? So um, she and she and my putative father, and, and it, it really depends on who you believe. He says he says I'm his kid. She says he's not my dad. So. Who knows? Um, mm. But till till the age of, of seven or so, they were together, and then they got divorced. And she remarried almost immediately to a, a guy from Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. And within ah. two two years, he was dead, um, having oh, shot himself with a shotgun in the basement. And um, then she married a, a third guy was an artist and he was pretty good he was an epileptic uh, nice guy but um, uh, he fell down the stairs into the basement and broke his neck so he was dead oh my gosh it sounds like an old betty davis movie yeah <laughs> okay, okay. And, and 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 you know i certainly am not in a position to say for sure what caused those sudden deaths right but i'm not in a position to say what didn't either Gotcha. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So then when she decided to pick you up and take you to Jamaica, which, holy smoke, folks, British Columbia to Jamaica, that's a hike. I, I didn't ask the uh, Wikipedia or anyone. It's probably a couple thousand miles. Um, <laughs> and this was, what, the 50s? So that, that's pretty astonishing that, that somebody... Yeah. 1959. She yeah. Was she single when she did that? She was. She was. But she had she had met a guy um, who claimed to own about half of the island and was <laughs> desperately in love with her. So wanted oh. her to go down to Jamaica and join him okay. there so that she could become queen of the island, as it were. So oh, did that she, happen? Um, well, she she moved um, three dogs, two children, and thirteen and a half tons of furniture down there. <laughs> but <laughs> but soon after she got there, she discovered that um, he had been arrested in Canada for fraud and went to jail. Oh dear! Okay, so she was manless then. She was manless in Kingston. Yes, <laughs> but it, but he was, but he wasn't dead. Uh, no, he wasn't. Dead. No, he wasn't. Dead. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, this yeah. is better than any book well, I could read in the know, next year. <laughs> I, I, I have to to say, and and this this is a philosophical point here, but I, I, I know what I think, but I'm going to ask what you think. Do you think that having this kind of troubled parentage? had some positive role in shaping you? 
I, I think it's very difficult to say. I think it would have been very easy. Um, and, and we've really just scratched the surface. I mean, in Jamaica, things got much worse. Um, you know, by the, by the time my, my mom, or by the time I left to, to go to university, my mother was drinking two bottles of alcohol a day. And, um, and probably is one of, was one of the cruelest people in, in, in the whole world. I mean, her, yeah. her attitude, her attitude was to essentially say, you know, nobody's going to ever want to marry you as a blind person. The only way anybody's going to ever want to have anything to do with you is because I've put a little bit of money aside for you. And whenever, whenever mm. I'd become friendly with a girl, um, she would essentially accuse that, that person of trying to, to force me to get her pregnant so that I'd have to marry her. And so what happened was uh, it, it became very lonesome for me um, because I, I essentially refused to involve anybody else in the relationship. So it, it was just very, um, and, and psychologically, I, I, after she died, I looked at some diaries that I had written when I was 13 or 14. And they, they said that all of this was my fault. And if, yeah. if, if, only, if only I would just die, things would be fine. <sighs> well, I'm sorry, but we all know you turned out quite wonderfully, so it's okay. It's okay. But, but, but to answer your question, I think... I think that that after after a while, I, I met some friends who um, some, a, a Chinese family in Saint Anne's Bay um, who who sort of adopted me and taught me mahjong and would occasionally help. There was mm. a there was a doctor in um, Kingston who was an orthopedist. Um, who kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to classical music and reaffirmed the fact that, that, that I was a real person and that I had value. And I think it's people like that who kind of helped me to, to, to reshape how I saw myself. And then, yes. yeah. you know, I was lucky enough to, um, uh, in, in spite of my mother, really, to, to win a uh, an open scholarship to the university, which which meant that um, my room and board and and um, tuition were paid for for the for the years that that I was getting my first degree. So, and I want to I want to talk about that. But before we talk about university, you say in this bio sheet that you gave me, I graduated from high school, sort of. <laughs> So, when I was um, 15 or so, my mother moved from Kingston to Ocho Rios and um, decided that um, I ought to be pulled out of school um, in order to learn to play. Um, and what that really meant was that I had to be closer to the area where she could kind of torture torture me but it also meant that um she she used to have these these week-long bridge games that would go on and um when when too many people from the bridge games had passed out um i had to step in and, and play hands so that the game wouldn't have to stop oh 
Oh my. Well, so you learned how to play bridge. I was very good at it, actually. I, I ended up getting some master's points in college, but I couldn't play bridge I, I, to I save my life I see some workshops now. coming here. You can teach us all to play bridge and teach us all to play mahjong. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, okay. So high school, what happened? So eventually, um, and, and there was lots of stuff that had happened in between, but I eventually got to the place where um, one of the salvations for me was going out with an old gardener named Scott to fish in the evenings. And I'd stay out all night. And I, I came in this one particular morning. I was 17, I think. And I was wearing a bathing suit and a long-sleeved white shirt. Um, and I, I just got to the stage place where I said, uh, I just can't do this anymore. So our our house was located at the bottom of a cane field about half a mile from the main highway. And I I think I had flip-flops on. So I had flip-flops and a long-sleeved white shirt and a bathing suit. <laughs> and I walked out to the main road, of course, didn't know how to use a cane, and and stood on the side of the road and waved my hands at cars when they passed. And eventually persuaded someone um, to take me to Kingston. And in Kingston, I, I got together with some folks who had been the principal of the school I was at and said, I, I can't live this way. It, you know, if I have to go back there, I'm going to kill myself. And so what ended up happening was they arranged for me to um, attend um the sixth form or a levels um at the same school again and and i moved into a little room um with a with a very proper old lady named miss joyce who was very nice to me and among other things served an english tea every afternoon at fall and one mm -hmm. had to come out for tea and behave properly and have a little cake and so on and um mm -hmm. it was it was a it was a lovely time, and, and um, I, I think had I not been able to um, to get to Kingston at that point, I wouldn't have made it. So I didn't pass O-levels, that is, I didn't pass what, what normally people pass at the end of their high school, but I, but I ended up with three or four A-level subjects in, in history and English and um, general studies and uh, and I also passed um, the year before on my own. I passed um, English uh, uh, English scripture. Um, so I, so I had four things, and then of course I ended up doing the scholarship exams, and that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, wow, That's fabulous! So because scholarships in 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 the West Indies were very different. Um, you had to pick your subject. Um, and I picked history, of course, but you then had to had to essentially take an examination. And um, there there are five scholarships available for the whole of the West Indies, um, and uh, I was lucky enough to win one because they were uh, fortunate enough for me to choose 
an obscure topic that I happen to be fond of, which is the the prime ministership of uh, Walpole in in the early 18th century. Mm-hmm. I just thought the South Sea bubble was so exciting. It was the, the first the first instance of um, financial chicanery bringing down governments, and so it was great fun. So, luckily, that was one of the questions, and apparently, I answered it well enough to win one of the five scholarships. So that was a pretty extraordinary kind of interest for a young person in in the sixties, I would say. Um, how do you think you and and when I read your sheet, I thought, really, a bachelor's degree in history? How odd! Who chooses history? I mean, I didn't start appreciating history until about a decade ago, I'm ashamed to say. So what do you think, what led you to that? What, what Are there particular books that you remember reading as a young person? That Because let's face it, I mean, there wasn't that the amount of, we didn't have the internet and downloadable Braille books. You, there couldn't have been tons of material available to you. Uh, we did not. You're right. Um, I think... Um, I think part of the part of the the reason that I enjoyed history was because there were there were two contrasting notions um, that that I was living through. Um, one was kind of the 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 opening up of America and the the the, the beginnings of 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 the new left and so on. But, but the other was the coming towards independence of, peop- of islands like Jamaica and Trinidad, where there's an entirely different notion of what reality is. Um, you know, it, a, a, as an American or a Canadian, what you look at is, is the degree to which the colonial system helped the people of Jamaica or Trinidad um, to, to become more capable. It gave them cricket and literacy and um and an educational system that was quite functional but on the other hand um if if you listen to the radicals in jamaica and and in trinidad they would say that what what it gave folks was an inferiority complex um Mm. a sense in which in 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 which as as people of color um they were they were going to be forever inferior because they had been completely put down by the colonial system. They'd been slaves. They'd been indentured. They'd been um, they they'd been attacked for um, protesting wages. They'd been fought every moment when they tried to form trade unions. Um, the the whole of the 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 whole of the Caribbean was as as is becoming apparent now with some very recent historiography um was an exercise in in lies and and concealment by the british colonial office um so it was fascinating to 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 live those two components together um and i think it it led me to to want to study um west indian history which i could um but also to um but also to to study british colonial history to try to understand what 
what created this this immense equipage of of organizations all over the world that that in effect created an ethos that dominated colored people everywhere when when you went to college so you're going to the university of west indies it was at that point a college of the university of london okay what was what was the racial makeup were you unusual as a white kid or i was there were uh, there were maybe maybe one percent if that many really yeah how do you think how has that shaped or or has it not i mean because i i i don't care what anybody says i i personally think we as blind people don't exactly perceive color when it comes to race the way sighted people do but 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 how do you think that shaped your attitude toward people of different I, I was very much involved in all the demonstrations and ran for elections for um, for, for various positions within the college and I was I, and I was also immensely idiotic there was a there we had a newspaper in our in our hall called um, um, the rising star and mm. um, I I was editor for I guess a year year and a half and um, of course this was all produced on stencils when one remembered oh, to turn the stencil yeah. on, of course. A lot of uh, but, people don't know what those are, but I remember. <laughs> um, so I remember uh, I remember thinking that it would be fun in, in the face of independence to publish an article. So um, I wrote an article on um, an organization which I claimed to be starting on campus called SPEW. <laughs> and, and SPEW stands for the Society for the Propagation and Extension of Whiteness. <laughs> oh, 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 it's too funny. So, and and most of the folks did not get it. Oh dear! It was not oh. one of my more my more more popular not, literary. Now because of, now because of this, you're going to be on the FBI. I, well, no question. <laughs> in, the, in the FBI yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, I would have laughed. I think. Yeah. Wow. I think. Can't be sure. Yeah. It was great fun. So, so from there, um, you went to Trinidad. Now, I, I tried to figure this out, so I, I'm going to confess. Because, hey, there's got to be at least one listener, maybe two, who's as geographically challenged as I am. How does one get from Jamaica to Trinidad? I mean, what, how does that work? I mean, well, usually, I mean, usually you fly, and that's what I did. Um, okay. But Jamaica okay. is at the other end of the archipelago. Essentially, okay. um, Trinidad is right off the coast of Venezuela, about 90 miles off the coast of Venezuela. Okay. So, um, so but how did you know about it? You're a blind kid. Well, all of the, <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, remember the University of the West Indies in Jamaica was the University of the West Indies. And so there were lots of folks, not just from Jamaica, but from Trinidad and Guyana. Oh, okay. And okay. from other countries. So I, was, so I became um, very friendly with a lot, a, a lot of folks from the Eastern Caribbean. In fact, um, I would say that probably 
more of my friends were Eastern Caribbean folks than than were Jamaicans, and and that was just accidental. It wasn't it wasn't because Jamaicans were were awful. I mean, them was good people, man. Right, but um, right. um, and 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 the other motivation for Trinidad was the this this entity. Um, L'Institut de Relations Internationales de Genève, um, which is the Institute of International Relations from Geneva, had decided that they were going to open a branch of their program in Trinidad. Um, and I thought, well, you know, you've got a special honors degree in history. It would be pretty cool to um, to follow up with a degree in international relations. And I had every intention eventually of trying to go into the state department. Um, which, which question, what were yeah. you doing? Yeah. Oh, okay. And, okay. but, but of course that didn't work. Um, but it, the, in, initially they said I couldn't go and that there was near, there, there was far too much material. So oh. I, I got, <coughs> excuse me. I got together a list of all of the books that I could get from RFB and D and all the books that I could get from <clears throat> other places. Though that's another story because um, when you were, when you were importing books um, from RFB and D um, you had to, you had to pay duty on them. Really? Yeah. So it was very, <laughs> very, very difficult sometimes to get books. You had to really mm -hmm. find a customs person with whom you could deal who would, would either feel sorry for you because you were blind or, <laughs> or would, <laughs> or would, um, would, would, would take us, um, would, um, would not charge a tremendous amount of duty. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, but anyway, they eventually said, you know, you're, you're too damn persistent. What the hell come? And um, so I did, um, and I had. Um, I I I have to say that that was the the most difficult year of education I've ever done. Um, they they were absolutely right. It was immensely difficult, but it was also immensely rewarding. Um, I had I had great fun doing that degree. Um, yeah, it was. What it was kind cool. of cool? support uh as a blind graduate student in trinidad what what kind of support did you have were you able to get materials in braille you say you got books from on tape from rfb and d and of course i know knowing the timing those were reel-to-reel -reel tapes those weren't yet cassettes right oh they they were it was it was worse they were um they were the the the, the little seven inch discs Oh, those never worked for me. We threw them away. <laughs> oh, they, they had to work for me because they were all I had. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, okay. And, and so, so, no so what braille. Else, no braille. No braille. Okay. Um, and really no support. I, I would hire readers um, who... Um, who would who would come to my room and read stuff onto um, open real tape for me? 
And, and, and did your scholarship include money for readers, or did you have something equivalent to? No, it it did not. Um, mm -hmm. I had to figure out other ways of finding that money. Um, okay. so, some of which were um, some of which were legitimate, and, and many of which were not. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we won't go there. Family radio show or something like that. I don't know. Um, but but I you know what I didn't know. Um, but was not at all surprised when I read this sheet that you sent me was that you uh, began a teaching career in Trinidad mm -hmm. and you taught at a girls' school and then Trinity College, which you say was an Episcopal boys' college. And to me, that seemed like such a perfect fit, thinking of Paul Edwards teaching young people. And, and so... I, I'm wondering what in those you you say very self-effacingly in in that sheet you sent me well, that you got this job because you didn't really know what else you could do and you didn't even think you were a very good teacher but you had to do something because you were married and you had a kid now but honestly wasn't there something deep in your soul that said this is what I was meant to do. I mean, see you connecting with young people so well i am I, um, I i think i learned that um during the first year when i was teaching in the girls school um i think i i think i learned that that i had an ability to connect to those folks and that i had an ability to control them um as kids not by um not by trying to be a disciplinarian, but by trying to make what I had to say interesting enough and exciting enough for them um, that they wanted to pay attention. Um, and and that's that's how I taught all the way after that. Um, and and of course I got into to, to all kinds of trouble with with traditionalists because I taught a lot um, using. Uh, Trinidadian patois, um, rather than you know proper English and speaking as one should, you know, <laughs> because I wasn't I wasn't interested in proper English. I was interested in communicating history, and the way you can do that is to talk with folks where they are, not where you are. Yeah, yeah. So you loved it, right? I, I I loved it until I didn't. Um, okay. When when you've been teaching the same subjects for ten years, um, it, it gets to the place where there isn't a lot more for you to teach, um, and there's not a lot more for you to learn about your subject. And and particularly, um, if, if the subjects are pretty narrow. So I was teaching. European history at, at A level, but I was also teaching what is the the special paper that was available for the Caribbean, which was a, an A level topic and where where you wrote essays. But it was on the apprenticeship system in the British West Indies. So this this was essentially a period of six years between eighteen thirty three and eighteen thirty nine. <coughs> Excuse me, where. Um, where an experiment was tried 
where instead of freeing the slaves, what they did was the, they created a situation where folks were essentially apprenticed for a while. And it, it was really a way for, for the planters to get another six years of, of cheap to, to, to free labor. Um, mm. But it, 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 after a while, um, when, when what you're being asked to, to look at is, is how effective the colonial office was at overseeing this stuff and how effective um, planters were at getting away with murder, um, it, 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 it becomes old. And, and that's what happened to me. Okay. Okay. So back to race for a minute. Mm-hmm. These kids the, that were your students, were they mostly West Indies kids? Sure. Okay. So what, uh, you, you taught for 10 years and then mm-hmm. you're suddenly in Florida mm-hmm. working as a rehabilitation teacher, going into people's houses and teaching them how to cook their food and wash their dishes. So okay. what happened? How did you get from point A to point B? That's a pretty big leap in my view. <laughs> how did that oh. happen? I had um, come up to Florida, um, I think in 75, and met with the Division of Blind Services, and they made all kinds of promises. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I when I eventually moved up in 76, um, what I found was that most of the things that they said they were going to do, they, they, they weren't doing. Um, but I also found <coughs> that I feel like I, I should do a commercial break so you can get some water, some water. <clears throat> that, that I needed to do <laughs> um, that I needed to do some training because remember here I was as a blind person um, and I had really never had um, the kind of training that I should have in orientation mobility and, right. and really in in the, the the kind of independent living skills, even um, that I needed, I was a I, I was a, a good braille reader, and um, um, and and could certainly teach. But um, I ended up um, going to the rehabilitation center in Florida and spent lots of time there, kind of building up the skills as a blind person that I just never had. Was that a residential facility? It was. Okay. So, and you were married that you, you had, you were married and you had your kids at this point. Right? I did. Were you still married? I, yes. Okay. Okay. But, but your wife was okay with you going off to stay at this school and learn how to be a blind person. I, th- I think so. Um, nice. we, we, we had every expectation that, that I would come back to Miami, which is where we were living then, and get uh-huh. a job. And, and of course, that's not the way it happened. I ended up getting a job in Daytona. So we ended up moving from Miami to Daytona. Hmm. Okay. And, and of course, the Division of Blind Services didn't find me the job. I found my own, which is typical. 
I thought your first job was with the Division of Blind Services, no? It, it was. <laughs> but my counselor in Miami had nothing to do with getting it. Um, gotcha. I, I, was the, yeah. I was the one who pushed, who pushed to be hired and who, who tried to demonstrate that I was good enough to be hired. And, um, and I was hired and worked there for the next 10 years. Well, I personally think all the best jobs are found by oneself anyway. I, never, I, oh, I think that's right. Never understood the concept of expecting some agency to find you a job. That doesn't make sense to me. I know that's what we're supposed to do today, but I don't get it. Um, so, um, I, I want to, because you, you've made it very clear, and, and, and I know you so that I know that, that you're volunteer life is in many ways more valuable to you than than your work life even though your work life is pretty fascinating paul it's it's pretty interesting um and it's it's varied and i think the most truly successful blind people have had these kinds of varied interesting careers because you do what you see an opportunity to do and, and and i think that's just just the way that that seems to to play out for many people and and yours is extremely extremely colorful um but <laughs> so so i i'll say and we we can talk about this later but i, I want to get into talking about your volunteer life but you, you eventually wound up being a rehab teacher and a rehab counselor and and uh, heading up an agency, and then finally, your career that you did for the most years, being the director of, of students, uh, the Students with Disabilities Office at Miami-Dade in Miami. So, um, so eventually, I want to talk a little bit about that, but I know that then was about the time that you... I'm guessing that was about the time that you discovered the blindness movement. You say, until I became associated with the American Council of the Blind, I saw myself as an inferior creature, desperately trying to compete in a world where I could never do quite enough to be accepted. What the blindness movement taught me is that the only person I have to satisfy is me. And I want to hear you talk about that. Did you, Paul Edwards, honestly believe ever that you were inferior? That's just seems impossible. Well, I think, I think a lot has to do with what, what your notion of reality is. Um, so you can choose to believe that you're being valued because of the work that you do, but you can easily, equally choose to believe that, that you're being valued um, bec because you're blind and because people are cutting you slack. And if you believe that, that people are cutting you slack because you're blind, um, then it's just as easy to believe um, that, in fact, you can't trust any of the evaluations that you get from anybody um, because 
because essentially they're all tainted. They're, they're tainted because of other people's attitudes toward blindness. They're tainted because of your attitudes towards sighted people and towards competition. And they're tainted as well because um, essentially um, in, in the interaction between blind people and sighted people, there is, uh, there, there is a whole huge gap um, that's created essentially um, by a failure to understand on both sides. So what for you was the introduction, the aha moment that you connected with the blindness movement, with blindness politics, as it were? I think, um, well, let's, let's, let's start from here, I guess. Um, <laughs> I didn't get involved in the American Council of the Blind until like 1984. Um, but from 1976, 77 until 1984, I was very much involved with the Florida Council of the Blind. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the work that I did um, during those seven years it involved the creation of new chapters, um, but but it also involved the opportunity to build a sense of what the FCB was and what I was uh, in a place where, because I was, um, along with a few other folks, kind of at the, at the radical fringe of um, the FCB, um, I was able to, um, to um, trying to decide how I want to put this, but I was able to develop uh, a, a way of, <coughs> excuse me, introducing blind people um, to themselves um, in in ways that that I had come to accept by by the interaction with other people in in ACB, <coughs> and so probably the first the first major change was. Um, discovering that it was really okay, in fact, necessary to be proud of being a blind person. And that's really been at the core of, of what I've tried to communicate ever since then, that the most important thing for, for folks to remember as, as individuals who are blind is that they really need to be proud of what they accomplish every day. Was there any particular event or person that helped you to recognize that in your own self? I don't think so, though you'd probably have to ask some other people within FCB whether whether there was a case, um, whether whether there might have been some, you know, I, I ended up being in charge of resolutions, which meant that I got pretty involved in policy relatively early. Right. Um, and also um, because I was kind of at the, as I say, at the radical fringe. There were a few young people like Doug Hall and myself who were, who were very much trying to make changes. And 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 people from ACB, like a lady who was known as Donna Vino then, <coughs> was Marlene, training, yeah. Yeah. was training in in Section Five Hundred Four, um, and then 
we became very much involved in the cross disability movement in Florida too. Right. Um, long before independent living was really independent living. Um, right. You know, we were, um, we, we were over there trying to upset apple carts um, in, in uh, 504 training that was being done by the state. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, that's how I got pulled in, too, in Ohio, Ohio and Indiana. Um, mm-hmm. Pat Beattie. You remember Pat Beattie, right? I do. She was really, she was one of the people and all those people from California who did that training. So, um, well, so I, I have to bring it around, you know, last Tuesday when I committed myself to enticing you to let me interview you. It was Gail's birthday, March 30th, and I was thinking about her all day, as I do every year on March 30th, and missing her. And um, to remind people who didn't know her, um, Gail Krause uh, was my best friend from childhood and um, Paul Edwards' most significant partner, I'd like to say, um, for 20 years, I guess. Yep. Uh, and uh, and and how and was my introduction to Paul Edwards because she was all gaga about this guy she met in Las Vegas, um, <laughs> but um, but in in thinking about that I thought okay you're meeting Gail and you're really becoming immersed in blindness stuff somewhat coincided right because wasn't that your first convention or second or something like that it was my second okay i think that yeah i think that the the philadelphia convention um which was 84 is is what really started me on the road because i had um i had and we we talked about this a little bit last last week but i had run across grant mack in florida um, who had watched me do resolutions and, oh. and asked if I would um, come and be on the resolutions committee at the national level. Um, and so I said I would. And um, little did I know that when I got there, um, I had been named essentially chair of the resolutions committee. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am at my first national convention I'm being told by all sorts of people who I respected and valued that I'm doing everything wrong. Oh um, no! And um, and 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 at the same, by the same token, I had people like Scott Marshall, who was helping um, to steer me um, through um, from away from making the most egregious errors. And um, Scott was really pretty amazing in terms of in in terms of helping me to get through that first year um and and i i ended up being involved in resolutions for much of the rest of my um my my acb career i i wasn't on resolutions when i was president but um beyond that i was there a lot of the time and so let's go to your being acb president i have to tell you i couldn't remember the years or didn't know the years and i went to the site today preparing for our interview and i could not find it so you need to recommend to acb that they put a list of presidents and their dates of service 
on the site because it's not there. But you know because you're you. So tell us when you were ACB national president and when you were Florida president and some of that leadership. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I was ACB president from 97 to 2003. Um, okay. And Florida president only after that. I had a, a pretty firm rule um, that, that I applied for a lot of the time that I was an FCB, and that was whether I was running an agency or whether I was working for the Division of Blind Services, I couldn't hold office in, in any organization because it, it, it would have suggested that, that I was um, um, playing favorites, and I didn't want to do that. <coughs> Excuse me. So in um <clears throat> but i think it was 97 to 2003 that that i was president and and of course as as with so many things in my life i i sort of got shoved in in the deep end um in that i i became first vice president uh really because some other people didn't want derwood mcdaniel to become first vice president so they encouraged five or six people to run um, for the office. The president at that time, and the the president at that time was um, uh, Otis Stevens, maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, um, the the fact is that instead of instead of Derwood McDaniel winning or instead of any of the other much more much more uh, established candidates winning the first vice presidency of ACP, remember I'd not been on the board, um, I won. <laughs> um, and I think I won because I was, I, I had this, this visibility as chair of the resolutions committee. Okay. And, and, I, okay. and I think a lot of people thought that, um, thought, thought that I was pretty smart and, and most most people either liked or hated my sense of humor, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are very entertaining. Of so I, I mean, there, there, there were I, I used to get people extremely angry with me because I'd say, uh, "All those in favor, signify by saying aye." Those opposed, say ear. <laughs> <laughs> and. There were a lot of people who thought that that was that was making a mockery of the resolutions process. Really, shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> and I always thought Reichert was bad. So you were you were well, you I was, taught him, huh? I taught uh, yeah. him. You know what? Oh, no Reichert is Reichert is a Paul Edwards wannabe. <laughs> Reichert is, and he's not going to make it. So that's my assessment of that. I don't see I him didn't in the say room. That, Mark. I don't but see my, him. I my, no, I did. That's why, because I don't care. Um, <laughs> I just call him as I see him. But you know, I my intro, my intro to disability rights advocacy, etc., was first that 504 training, and next immediately on its heels, and I couldn't tell you which year. Coming to an ACB convention and coming to resolutions hosted by Paul Edwards, and I—it was just mesmerizing. I remember it with that tape-based versa braille man. You, oh, you were just like brilliant. Well, you still are brilliant, but it was just 
so dazzling how you managed all those all those phrases and, and just kept it going and it was really cool and and I, I I don't know I think I came a bunch of years but I'm not sure but I do know I was there that year that um the lights went out in Los Angeles yes yeah <laughs> that, that, that was that, that was funny because and the uh, died <laughs> it did it did and um, we were all guiding sighted people down the stairwells it yeah it's great fun yeah um, but <laughs> how many but, years do you think you did that i don't know um at least 20 i think um wow. before and after um you know i've been doing it for the past five years or six years probably um but i think i think i'm very fortunate to have um to have been involved with resolutions because i think the resolutions committee and the resolutions process is is one of the most important in acb because that's where we make our policy um and 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 all the way through um those of us those of us who chaired resolutions were very conscious of that um we're we're very clear that that we weren't just we weren't just writing resolutions about um, uh, the next the next big toy. We we were writing resolutions that that talked about how blind people should be treated in in um, sheltered workshops. We were writing mm -hmm. resolutions about what is the real meaning of civil rights for folks who are blind as compared to um, folks from other minorities, and what are the differences and and how do you how do you maximize the effectiveness? And then uh, when, when you see the resolutions pass and you see that them become part of ACB's policy, then you can look back and say, you know, we had an impact on changing the way that, that blind people perceive themselves and were perceived by others and and the interactions of, of, of the two groups because of the policies that we espoused and then turned into resolutions and then turned into um, elements that, that became the core of what ACB stood for. You've worked on a lot of advocacy and legislative efforts. Is there one or maybe two things that have happened that you had your hand in that are your, of which you're particularly proud i think i think one of them is is um we worked with national industries for the blind to try to come to a, a place where where we could agree that that there was an appropriate um way of treating people who are only blind who are working in um in uh nib workshops and pat Beatty and i um along with uh some other folks from nib um actually sat down and had meetings and, and arrived at an agreement which meant that in in oh i guess 19 <coughs> 88 or 89 we passed um, a resolution that that in effect um 
that in effect created a situation where NIB actually agreed to exert pressure on their individual members um, to try to encourage them to live up to the standards which which we wrote and and what they essentially said were if if you are if you are blind and that is your only measurable disability and you're working in a sheltered workshop um, it is absolutely and categorically forbidden that you be paid less than the minimum wage if if you can't work and and make money at the minimum wage and your only problem is blindness then so be it um they they certainly have the choice of letting you go but but really the truth is that what we wanted to do was was to make it clear that not only not only if blindness was the only disability could you not make less than the minimum wage but that there had to be very specific reasons why anybody could make less than minimum wage. So long before it became a, a major issue, um, ACB had an, in effect passed a policy that we that we think and that we thought and I still think um, represented the, the basis of what the solution was um, for sheltered workshops down the road. Um, and also I think there were some there were some uh, policies that we passed that related to um, understanding civil rights um, for blind and visually impaired people, and particularly for the multiply disabled folks. Um, five or six years ago, Chris Bell and I uh, were at very much at loggerheads, and we finally came to an agreement. And mm-hmm. I think we passed um, we 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 passed what is what is by far the most far-reaching. Um, resolution about um, our requirement almost to, to recognize um, the needs of folks um, who uh, have developmental disabilities and who are also blind um, because for the most part um, they were being ignored by ACB. Right, right. So I, I just want to say um, to, to folks who have raised your hands, I promise I have a couple more questions and then we're going to allow plenty of time for other folks to ask Paul questions. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm selfish. What can I say? I'm a selfish witch and, and I have my things I want to ask him. I have just a couple more and then, and then we'll open it up. But um, I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, now, you know, I, I should have said to you at the beginning, you do have the right to tell me anything to just go away. You're not answering that. So this may be one of those questions. But I know that you've been sick. And um, uh, I just wondered if you wanted to talk about what is your life like today? What's what's your life look like? What's going on? Well, <clears throat> it's... um. It's it's very much up and down. Um, for I have a disease which is a, a lung infection infection called Kansas eye, which has to be treated with a cocktail of antibiotics for a period that's likely to exceed a year. Um, when 
when I initially began to take a different cocktail of anti cocktail of antibiotics in Miami, um, I I very nearly died. Um, my mm. my kidney functions went from one where they're supposed to be to three point eight, and um, my liver was also giving out very quickly. And I I came up here to Jacksonville and um, got involved with two very good doctors who. Um, who communicate well with me and, and who I can communicate well with. But nevertheless, um, even though I got onto a different cocktail of antibiotics and, and my kidney functions are down to normal, um, my liver functions remained high or got higher. And so for a period of about a month, I was off all of the treatment just to, to allow my liver to come back into normal range. And what we've done now is we've reintroduced the antibiotics a different cocktail, but instead of doing them every day, I'm doing them three times a week. Um, and so it may mean that it will take it longer for the, the, the infection to heal. Um, but nevertheless, if, if, if the liver function remains within acceptable parameters, then the treatment can continue. The scary thing is we won't know for a couple of weeks until I do some more blood tests um, mm -hmm. what the situation is. Um, and, you know, there are days when um, when um, I, I feel reasonably good, as I do today. And then there are other days where I don't uh, feel very good. I itch all over or I... Um, or I have horrible chills, or I um, have a bad headache, or I have nausea, and so it's it 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 very much is a question of of what any given day is going to be like. But you have better family support. Being right? I do. My my eldest daughter probably saved my life um, by insisting that we come from. Miami up here to Jacksonville. Um, she is a nurse practitioner and uh, runs her own business and is very, very, very well respected um, in in um, in Jacksonville. And so she she not only got me up here, but but immediately got me into the hospital and immediately got me the kind of treatment that I really needed in order to survive. And then. And then, um, and then has helped me to find this apartment, which is, uh, which is really nice and, and, um, and is within 10 minutes of all my doctors. So, so is Jacksonville to be your home now? Do you think? Do you I, I don't know for sure. I, I would think it's looking closer. It's looking more likely, <coughs> but um i love my house in miami and it has lots of wonderful memories um and so it, it's going to be a, a difficult decision for me to to make uh to get rid of um you know a house that has so much of um gail and i in it yeah so speaking of home that's another question that i had that i wanted to ask you 
you've lived so many places and now you've spent well more than than half your life i guess in florida but when you think of the word home where is home for you do you ever miss jamaica or trinidad or canada have you ever gone back to those places what what, what where is home it's a difficult question um i i th- i think i think i'm <coughs> excuse me content with florida um <clears throat> you know i have lots of lots of good friends here and and um uh, they, they have they've been very accepting of my idiosyncrasies which is nice um so I guess I would probably say Florida overall is 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 the place that I would consider home. I don't, I can't imagine myself leaving here. Um, I would have thought Canada for for a while, but but there are things that I've discovered about Canada that that um, would would make it difficult for me to do well there. I think, um, and and in I've been back to Trinidad. Um, and 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 certainly have enjoyed it, um, but again, I I think that was part of part of my past, and Florida is sort of my present. I think. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So uh, another philosophical question that I can't, I just can't resist to ask because this leapt out to two statements you made in that bio sheet that just leapt out at me. One, you say, it isn't easy to be blind. And anybody who says it is, or who suggests that it's a walk in the park, not live in the same world I do. I just want to hear you talk about that, because I've got to tell the truth, it surprised me. It surprised me. I don't don't think it's easy to be blind. I I, I think you can be proud of every day that every day and everything you accomplish as a blind person, but I don't think it's easy. Um, there, there is discrimination uh, out there, and there's lots of it, both in terms of employment, in terms of living, in terms of, um, in, in, in terms of um, attitudes towards guide dogs, in terms of almost anything you care to name. And, and there are expectations that people have about you as a blind person that it's very difficult for you to meet sometimes, um, especially if you don't particularly want to. It's very hard. I mean, look at look at how often um, societies have notions of what blind people ought to be, how they ought to conform. If you if you get up in the middle of a meeting and you dare to speak out because there's no there's no braille materials, what are, what are you being? You're not being an appropriate blind person. You're being an <laughs> asshole who happens to be blind. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So, and that leads right into this other statement that you made that I want you to talk about, and then we'll open it up to questions from other people. You say, society does not need to accept me, but they do need to include me. So, well, oh, that's that really is the at, at the core of what I believe, and, and it really is the difference between if you like the NFB philosophy and the ACB philosophy, you know, the NFB philosophy talks seriously about integration and really seems to believe that it's possible 
to integrate blind people in, 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 into society. I don't believe it is. I don't believe that, I don't believe that sighted people will ever accept blind people, uh, as equals. I don't believe that, um, I don't believe that, that the sighted world has any interest in regarding us as anything but inferior beings. And that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. I really don't because because for me, the idea of integration was ridiculous anyway. Um, th- there, is, there is so much about the sighted world that I don't like, so I, so I don't care very much whether I'm integrated into it or not. And I have absolutely no preconceptions that I can change the, the way the sighted world is, so, so I'm not going to try. But on the other hand, I have every right to be included in every element of society, at, and, and that inclusion should be equal. So you don't have to. You don't have to like me. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. Um, you don't have to believe that that uh, that I'm anything but inferior, but. <coughs> If I want, if I want to run for office, you've got to facilitate my ability to do that. If I want, if if I want to change laws, you have you have to to give me the right um, to appropriately intervene to try to do that. If 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 I am a part of a society, um, then I'm I am a fully functional member of that society not someone who is required by your discrimination and prejudice to live on the fringe. So you can hate me if you like, but include me, you must. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Well, Rick and Larry, you guys have been so kind to me, letting me kind of corral Paul all to myself, but um I'm throwing it out there to see now if either of you have questions. And then, Rick, if you can see if sure. there's hands raised. I know I've seen a few hands. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. There's no hands up here at the moment. Folks, if you want to ask any questions of Paul, please raise your hand. You know how to do that. Uh, folks are usually pretty good, but it's uh, Alt-Y in the PC, um, Star 9 on the telephone, I believe. And... Uh, if you're on an iPhone app or an Android app, there's a raise hand button in, in the middle of the screen. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Paul, yeah, you know, one thing I've noticed about you, um, and it's it's been an absolute pleasure uh, working with you over the last year and getting to know you and, uh, you know, building a friendship with you. Uh, not that we weren't friendly before, but um, you've touched me in, in many, many ways. Um, and you continue to today uh, with everything you had to say today. You've been very gracious um, over over the weeks and months of Tuesday topics of of acknowledging the people who have mentored you. And I, I kind of want to turn the tables a little bit. And and this may be an uncomfortable question, but I, I'm sure you have been the mentor to many people and i'm just wondering if you want to talk about some of your successes in that regard i i think um 
I think I have. Um, Gail and I um, used to used to adopt um, a, a number of younger folks who were blind, and used to invite them to our house quite often. Um, one of the one of the people who used to come down to our house pretty frequently was at that point in charge of um, transportation up in uh, Palm Beach County, and that was Mr. Ron Brooks and his wife Lisa. Um, again, there were a lot of kind of Hispanic and and black folks who were uh, from around the Miami and and Broward areas who we used to invite um, every year for Thanksgiving. And who 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 we who we really tried to mentor, um, and a, a lot of those people ended up be, be remaining my friends for the rest of their lives. Um, many of them, unfortunately, are dead because some of them were diabetics, and other had others had other difficulties. Um, you know, there is there's a gentleman who's becoming more active at, at the ACB level, and is certainly well known at FCB, whose name is Mikey Wiseman who is uh, a gentleman who um, came to Miami-Dade College while I still worked there. And I, I was fortunate enough, I think, to catch him at the right moment and persuaded him um, that there were some other directions he could go in than the ones that he was going in. And so he's now first vice president of uh, FCB and, um, and is doing very well. But, and, and I'm I, I think I think what I like to do is to is to take as much of that person and awaken it so that so that it understands what what the person is capable of. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, I think I think mentoring in, involves much more um, helping a person come to terms with who they are. Than it does, uh, than than it does, giving them specific tasks to do. Well, we kind of skimmed over. We talked about you, you got all your braille skills as a kid in Canada and so forth, and you said you didn't really have uh, orientation and mobility skills until you came to Florida. But what about that? How, who helped shape that part of you in terms of independence and and as an independent blind person. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think, um, I think I had a lot to do with it. I used to, I used to spend hours while I was at the rehab center walking back and forth along sidewalks to get my, um, <coughs> O and M techniques down. And I think that, um, and I think the same thing was true with um, with kind of the, the independent living stuff. Um, you know, I, I went through the whole exercise of, of um, spending time in the rehab center apartment and therefore having to cook my own food and blah, blah. And, and I think all of that, all of that helped. But it also, it also made me really angry. Um, you know, I had come from Jamaica and Trinidad, um, places where um, blind people were far worse off than blind people in this country were. And yet here, here there were uh, blind people who, who essentially were making no effort 
to to go to work were were absolutely convinced that it was okay um, to to take from the trough for as long as they could, and then um, to go back and take from the trough some more. And and I I there was there was a, a quite a while where I where I couldn't get involved with um, with the American Council or the National Federation, and I looked at both um, because um, I, I was too angry at the way that that people who had access to whatever um, whatever services they needed, whatever services they wanted, were essentially unwilling unwilling to become all they could be, and instead were perfectly content to simply drift. I have an interesting. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, and just um, you know, there's all kinds of things you can you know attribute to that. I, you know, one of the things I think that um, is a huge problem in the blindness community is um, depression. Yes, and and uh, um, and and I don't think depression necessarily is the thing that drives a lot of the behavior you just talked about, but. But um, I don't know about you, Paul. I've certainly have been battling depression all my life, and, and I have too. Uh, uh, what, any thoughts on that topic? Um, I think that I think that everybody has to come to terms with depression in their in, in their own way. Um, uh, I I I have I have been diagnosed as as all kinds of different mental incompetencies um but i think the one that i suffer from most is depression and what i've found is that is that essentially i have to take myself by the bootstraps if if i allow myself to get dependent on on medication it's it just doesn't work for me um and so eventually what i end up having to do is to stop the medication and and simply pull myself up by the bootstraps by coming up with a project that I can that I can work on and can do. Um, and I mean, it sounds simplistic, and and I'm I'm probably lucky that that I can operate that way. I don't think it's simplistic at all. I think that's exactly it. And I think for me, we all have different solutions. This is why I probably will never retire because I have to have. A purpose. If I don't have a purpose, I'll go to bed and pull the covers up over my head. And that's, yep. you know, there has to be work to be done. And and we didn't talk about your current involvements, but I think that's what it's all about with you continuing to be involved in the Rehabilitation Council and this um, uh, Blindness Foundation that you mentioned and um, other and, and all your, your work with ACB. That's what to me, that's what that's all about. You have to. Oh, have I absolutely agree. I, I mean, I, I am fortunate that uh, the Tuesday topics agreed to have me back. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it helped me immensely. Even after today. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Larry, so where do you see ACB going in the next years? It's changed quite a bit since you joined it in the seventies. Where do you see it going in terms of its future? Um, I, I find it very difficult to predict, um, and I'm not sure I have I have a good answer. Um, I think the next five years are going to be critical 
in terms of where it goes. Will will we be able to survive with conventions that will be hybrids, um, oh. or 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 will or will the the on-site <coughs> component eventually go away um, because we simply can't afford to make it work? Um, and besides which, why should people come when they can get everything they want by staying home? And so will will the on-site convention eventually go away? I don't I don't know the answer to that. How important is the on-site convention and the way that we operate um, to the survival of ACB? Um, I think it's a it's another of those open questions. Community calls have become important. Um, and the formation of what's called ACB, quote, community, unquote, has become important. But to what degree is that community stifling creativity within ACB? And to what degree uh, is that, uh, is, is the notion of conformity replacing the, the notion of innovation? Um, and will Will conformity kill innovation? Will innovation somehow emerge? Um, I think they're very difficult questions to answer, and I think that the future of ACB is 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 poised on on the edge of uncertainty, and I I have no idea what in the long run um, will will be the result. Yeah, it's interesting because you said you didn't use the word evolve, but. Truly, if we don't evolve, if we don't continue, if we don't change, right. we're destined to actually just probably just fall off the edge, whatever that might be, in exactly. no matter what we do. Yeah. So, Rick, are there are there any hands? I know Ann Morrow kept putting her hand up, and no, there are not any hands, okay. unfortunately. Okay. Pam Coffee raised her. Oh, wait, a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is a hand. Wait a minute. Hold on, just one. Yeah, it's Pam Coffee. Hey, Pam. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't see you Gee, there. Paul, Pam, why don't Pam? you host next week? Yeah, I just raised my <laughs> hand. That's why you didn't see it. I had just raised it. Okay, thank uh, you, Pam. Hey, Miss yes, Pam, how are uh, you? Well, I'm doing well. I have a very, hopefully, a quick question and a quick comment. I'll start with the comment. Um, you you ask the question: Does the community stifle creativity and i don't think it does because the community calls have well they're just covering more and more <clears throat> more and more areas now you know mm -hmm. all of the arts and crafts all of the performing arts the uh uh mental health, various health topics. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. They're going, they're all over the map. I think you uh, make a really good point, Pam. And my question is, do you think that overall um, that discrimination um, against those who are sight impaired, do, do you feel that 
there's more of it now than there was when you were first starting out in the, oh, the professional and uh, that sort of world? Or do you think it's things have gotten better or is it, I mean, where do you think we stand as far as that goes? That's a very good question and a very difficult question to answer, too, I think. <laughs> Got um, you. I think, that, um, I think that there has always been discrimination and that there always will be discrimination. And, and, and I'm content with that. I don't know whether, I don't know whether it's less um, egregious now than it was. Um, I think in some respects it may be, but the difficulty is that when when you look at Black Lives Matter and you look at at um, the emergence of um, the LGBT movement uh, and and you look at uh, the effectiveness of um, the deaf lobby, um, blindness discrimination has kind of fallen below the, the radar. Uh, and I'm and I'm not sure that there are a lot of people who are working to change it very much. So, um, so I think the truth is that we are being overshadowed by other forms of discrimination and other forms of uh, of betterment that folks are are working towards. Um, and 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 the the end of blindness discrimination has sort of gone by the way. I think. Are we as a group? Which is all- sad. Are we as a group yes. all less angry, perhaps, than other people? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the one of the one of the unquestionable realities is that the disability group who files the smallest number of complaints uh, uh, with regard to the Americans with Disabilities Act are blind folks. Interesting. Huh. Not surprising, though. Yeah, it's it's and and it's somewhat perplexing, you know, why that is. Because, I, I mean, there's anger properly channeled can be a very very powerful thing, you know. It absolutely can. I mean, that's what drives you know all civil rights movements and so on. And yeah. there, there just seems to be so much complacency that's just rooted in accepting, you know, the current state, which. Boy, complacency I, 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 are us. That is yeah, a it, word. It, it, that it, is the word. You know, and, and, it's, and that's the aspect of the blindness community that angers me. You know what I mean? Right. And, and yes. I think I think I yes. think it, it does you too, uh, folks. And yes, so so it's uh, it, 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 you know it's interesting. I you know we do our you know like I've been doing a lot of. Uh, transportation ab- advocacy here in, in Boston, and it's been kind of quiet because we haven't had any major crises, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're at our best when we've got something that that is is really causing us to unite and so on. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, I think it, there's a line that many blind people miss between gratitude and groveling and maybe that's really blunt but you know i i feel like all too often blind people are just so gushing and insipid about oh thank you thank you so much thank you for helping me find the door like get over yourself you know like 
you do something for them, they do something for you. It all works out. And, and I'm all about smile, 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 smile. You know, when, you, when you're out in the world, remember the days before COVID when you really were out in the world? But, but, <laughs> but, but so I, Debbie, I'm about Debbie, I think along, but not groveling. I think, I think the reality is, though, that there are an awful lot of blind people who accept the notion um, that, it's, that it's okay to, um, to accept whatever help you can get and not be very capable um, simply because the help's there. I mean, it's the same. People don't take buses because the paratransit system's there. Yeah. yeah, I know this to be true uh, with people that I know, and they're much rather yeah. at wait and find somebody who can help them, or depend on someone they know rather than yep. to take that extra step. And that, yeah, sometimes yep. that could be scary, and, and, but it's got to be got done. A, I've got a per- personal theory that a lot of this stems from family. Sure, you know, does. yes, as, sure, as, does. As, absolutely. Expectations being formed at a very, very young age, and to a certain extent. I mean, you endured so much, Paul. Um, uh, you know, the, it, it was just heart-wrenching to hear you talk about your childhood. But uh, it, it did help shape you in terms of not accepting, sure. you know, your, and, your, your situation. Right? And that was why I asked that question. You know, as I said, Gail, Gail knew my life from the time she was a little kid. And she knew that she had a really good, solid family, and I didn't. And... And I remember her telling me, well, Paul's like you, you know, he's, 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 he's had it rough, but he's okay. You know, he's smart and he's made it all work out and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's why I said I have this early memory. Maybe you don't remember it, Paul, but I remember being in this restaurant with Gail and we were like trading horror stories. And they were, right. They were horrible. But I think that, I think, you know, give me any day my working class messed up family for parents who handed me everything and let me sit on my butt all the time because, you know, I'm lazy. I never would have learned, you know, I, I learned stuff because I had to, and I'm, it's clear that that's what you did. And, and wow, you're you're getting out of Dodge. I mean, we could make a movie out of just that. Paul Edward (laughs) leaving home, doesn't even know what hitchhiking looks like. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's you know really a pity that you're not going to do an autobiography, you know. So, oh yeah. So what? Did, you know, I didn't ask you that. What does that mean? You wrote. I know one thing. I won't write it. What's that? What that? Oh, just so we'd ask you to. <laughs> I think I think he wants in, us to grovel a little bit. You know. I, I think in the first place. In in the first place, there are so much of uh, of my childhood and 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 my teenage years is just sad and ugly and nobody needs to nobody needs to relive well, pl- that plus plus you you don't want to necessarily relive that either right no exactly so and, yeah <coughs> and and the other thing is that um uh, i think that i think that there are there are so many other things that it's more worthwhile to write about um, than than me. Um, you know, my my brother would might might be an interesting 
um, biography to write. I mean, he <clears throat> he ran away from home when when I was fifteen and he was sixteen, and mm. ended up ended up shrimping in the in the Gulf of Mexico, and then uh, driving a, a variety of trucks and going to sea in Sweden, and eventually along with two other guys who were relatively inexperienced sailors, uh, took a 47-foot catch around Cape Horn. Wow. Wow. Diane. Yes. Um, good evening. I wasn't, going, I wasn't going to ask anything originally, um, but I'm wondering, well, first of all, you know, you met, uh, I've heard it said that a lot of the ADA doesn't seem to address blind people. You know, a lot of it has to do with public access and, and things like that. And I wonder if that could be a reason why more uh, more blind people don't, you know, don't use it, don't um, complain under it, file claims under it, etc. I mean, you could be right, Diane. Uh, you know, um, Clearly, in the lead up to the to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the National Federation of the Blind um, chose not to participate in in a lot of the negotiations and 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 essentially um, declared that that the ADA is as not very appropriate or effective. Um, and so clearly, that there 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 was an interest in in them not doing anything. But I think. I think that there has been, in general, a recognition since the passage of the ADA that that there are some valuable things in it for blind people if they would use it. I mean, particularly under Title I, um, there is there is some there is some good reason for um, uh, complaining about discrimination in the area of employment, and under oh, under cool. Title III, clearly, um, you know, there 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 are. Situations where um, stores and and other places and even <coughs> the online components of um, brick and mortar stores are not living up to expectations. Where 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 blind people clearly have a capacity to to complain and don't. Um, okay. Okay. The other the other question I had. Mm -hmm. Um. It's possible I wasn't listening, but did you um, did you tell us whether um, you were blind from birth or whether you lost your sight later in life? I had um, retrolentral fibroplasia, as as I prefer to call it, rather than <laughs> prematurity. Yeah, prematurity. Uh, I had the same thing. of prematurity. I think it's more impressive and, um, that way to call it. And so I probably had. I probably had vision for a few days, um, but I have very little recollection of it. So essentially, I was blind from birth. Okay. Had a teeny bit of, of light perception that lasted until I was maybe four, and then that went away. Like a lot of us, I think. A lot of us yep. went that route. Uh, th mm -hmm. Thanks for the information, and um, Deborah, you're doing a great job. I enjoy reading your stuff in Access World. And well, uh, you're you. doing a great job tonight also. Oh, I had good material, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, guys. <laughs> that's that's the, the basis of doing a good job with a story is good material. I hope that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Thank you.
Yeah, you haven't brutalized them too much. So no, you I, actually, I, I'm, I'm feeling been generous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling kind. <laughs> uh, Donna, Donna Browning, please. Hey, Paul. This is Donna Browning. How are you? I am well. I enjoyed hearing about you and getting to know you better. I always enjoy listening to your Tuesday topics when I can come. Excellent. Uh, and you're quite inspiring. But the one thing I want to ask you is if if you could write a letter to that little boy, what would you say to him, to yourself as a child? What would you say? That's a great question. That is a great question. And it's actually a very hard question. Um, I, I think I would say to him, it's not your fault. Because it's amazing the kind of um, <clears throat> the kind of of guilt that a little kid carries on his shoulders, and I I just wish there had been somebody long before they did, which is when I was seventeen or eighteen, who said to me, "It's it isn't your fault. You're okay. It's not it's not your fault." So um, that's I think what I'd like to say in a letter. I like that. Another question. I may have missed it, but um, did you have a hobby, or do you have a hobby now? Um, I like to read um, science fiction and fantasy. I am into modern folk music. Um, I um, uh, am, am not an active sports person. When I was very young, I used to do some sailing um, and, and obviously some fishing but very rudimentary fishing, and I was never very good at it. Um, but for the most part, uh, reading and, and um, listening to music. Yeah, you and, my, you and my husband would have a great time. He's a huge history buff, and I, nice. I know he enjoyed hearing that about you. Excellent. Yeah, he's been listening to this, too. Excellent. Miss Donna, thank you so much for your questions. You're certainly welcome. Thanks for letting me speak with you. You're welcome. There's no more hands, Paul, but you just killed me with the uh, it's not your fault thing. Um, God, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it was at Donna's was the first question that made me cry. cry. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it made me cry, too. So it, it's yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was a great question, Donna. I'm not sure I wanted to answer, but it was a great question. <laughs> Pretty amazingly quick, too, Mr. Paul, to be able to answer it as you did. Um, I did have, to end on a, a lighter, happier note, I did have the whole folk music on my list, but I thought I was, you know, had to give other people an opportunity. But I'd love to hear about... Um, I, I remember being at some powwow, and you and Paul Schrader introduced me to John Gorka. Right. John Gorka, I think of you guys. And I think that's the way of a lot of folk music is we introduce people to one another. But, um, yeah, so what do you, what, what's your, for, for one thing, how do you listen to folk music these days? Do you have a CD collection, a vinyl collection? Do you just listen to it all on the Amazon Echo or, you know, what? So I, so I had a vinyl collection um, okay. that got destroyed in a hurricane. I had about 3,000 or 3,500 um, uh, oh. folk albums. Um, and then I've gradually built up um, a CD collection. And I probably have 
oh, five or 6,000 CDs. Um, but they are in Miami and I am mm-hmm. in Jacksonville. Right. Um, um, so there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, um, outlets for folk music, um, on internet radio. And a lot of them can be gotten via Alexa, Folk Alley from TuneIn, um, The Village from Sirius XM. Um, oh. oh no. Hold on. Alexa, stop. <laughs> <laughs> she had to get her two cents in there. Uh, it would be good to have some background music. Now you may have yeah. just turned off Tuesday topics on a lot of people's players. You realize that. Oh, no. Because <laughs> you told her to stop. Oh, no. Oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, my gosh. Because that's how I often listen. It's <laughs> on the Hey, Rick, how many people did we have listening on, on, but on the stream? I, I, I don't know. I anyway, don't know. American Roots is a, is another good station. Um, oh, I don't know that. The Acoustic Outpost is another good station. Um, another is, um, uh, what's it called? Um, <laughs> Love Song Cafe is another one. Um, Got Radio Folklore is another. So oh, there, there are, there are really, and that's, there are, there are others, but that's, that's kind of a tip, the tip of the iceberg um, in terms of, in terms of folk oriented radio stations. And there, so there's lots. Awesome. So did you cry with me when we lost John Prine last year? Oh, I did. I did. And and in fact, every now and again, I run across songs by John Prime that I've never heard before, and, and really thought that I knew all of his stuff. I, I ran across a song today that I had never heard about um, falling into a bottomless lake. You know, I don't think I know that, but the title is familiar. So I've read references <laughs> to it, but I've not heard the song. But I love this song that I just discovered a couple years ago. That is called "In Spite of Ourselves." Yep, it's so funny. It cracks me up. I and her husband were here last week, and I played it for him. And I said, "You know what? I don't have a boyfriend, so somebody has got to." I dedicate this song to the two of you. <laughs> somebody's got to adopt it. I love it so much. It is, yeah, he's just it's so a, wonderful. It's a great song. <laughs> so. Um, well, I don't know about uh, timing, so it looks to me like we're winding up, and I want to make sure you have time to promote whatever you do next week. So Actually, I have- just want to say um, that I am Deborah Kendrick, and I thank you, Paul Edwards, for allowing me to come and interview you and share some of your wonderful life with listeners and thank you, Rick and Larry, for doing the technical genius stuff you do and and for letting me be, you know, kind of greedy with this. But uh, I appreciate it, and I've just enjoyed it so thoroughly. Oh, Paul, I bet you want to talk about next week or something. Well, I may. Let me see if let me see if Rick and Larry want to add anything before we before we move on to that. No, I just want to thank uh, thank Deborah for you know great job. Thanks for being here and brilliant, brilliant idea to do this. Um, it was and, po- 
Ben Paul, thank yeah. you so much for for sharing yourself with everybody. This um, this idea will not work again in the uh, succeeding weeks. So if someone else comes up with an idea, it can't be about Paul. No. So no. you'll yep, have to figure out something else yep. to do when you yep. call him after Tuesday topics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. This Won't was work. terrific. I, I enjoyed this a lot. I hope everybody else did too. So I'd like to thank um, all three of you guys for um, for um, for being a part of. Um, of this this week um it's it is um it's sort of scary to look back over one's life but it's also i think enriching to to think about the number of people whose whose lives you've touched and the numbers of of places you've been able to go um and and really you know if i had my if if i had my life to live over i wouldn't change very much um, as, as I said in the, the, the bio sheet that I sent out to these guys, um, the one thing I might change, um, was finding a way to, um, spend more time smelling the roses. That is not being so busy, but I think that, that my childhood created my life. It was much easier for me, um, to get involved in macro things like, like ACB than it was to be really good at relationships, which, which I don't think I ever was. <coughs> so as to next week's Tuesday topics, um, I do have an idea which I'm working on, but I don't have any final confirmation of the idea at this point. So um, all I can say is if, if we are fortunate enough to put this together, it will be an extremely timely topic that we'll be looking at, I suppose I can say this much, um, it will be looking at um, some of the changes that are that are taking place in the ACB email system, why they're taking place and, and where we're going. And so if we're able to put that together, uh, that will be what Tuesday topics will be about um, next week. I am serious, though, about wanting to get ideas from folks for other Tuesday topic topics, uh, I don't by any means have uh, a monopoly of ideas. Uh, the main thing that I want to do with Tuesday topics is to give us an opportunity to explore ideas which, without Tuesday topics, we probably wouldn't look at. You know, there are a lot of questions that folks ask tonight. Um, that forced us to look at elements of blindness that's a little different than the elements that we usually look at. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that distinguishes Tuesday topics from other programs that are on the internet. We, we try to encourage uh, as much diversity of opinion as we can, and, and we try at the same time um, to be open to that diversity so that uh, in, instead of simply disregarding or um, making irrelevant the, the topics, we are in fact um, accepting the notion that um, everybody's opinion is valuable and that it is everybody's opinion that makes life worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a great pleasure to be under the microfo 
microscope or phone. I did not feel at all that I was ever under the gun. So thanks again for everybody who's listened and for everybody who participated. Good night.